let's just let's begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit will instruct the hearts of thy faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Church, Saint Joseph, Saint John the Beloved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man without sense, and lo, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. There is a good description of the soul of the slothful man. Overgrown with thorns, covered with nettles, the stone wall broken down. It's fitting that we um, reflect on this vice or deadly sin uh, today on Latari Sunday, doing uh, Vespers this evening. It struck me that the, the prayer uh, for, for Mass today was all about hastening towards Easter with alacrity. And the, 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 uh, the Latin uh, brings it out even more. It talks about prompta devotione, a prompt devotion, an immediate response to the Lord. Alacri fide, uh, alacrity of faith. Uh, and these are the things that counter uh, the sin or the vice of sloth. So let's uh, discuss, first of all, uh, this, uh, this deadly vice, this capital vice or deadly sin, whichever you want to call it. So St. Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians says that worldly grief produces death. And this is what St. Thomas says is sloth. Uh, it is a worldly grief. It is a grief or a sorrow about divine things. And um, Chaucer, as I have on your sheet there, says envy and ire, so envy and wrath, which we went over last week, make bitterness in the heart, which bitterness is the mother of sloth, and separates him from the love of goodness. Uh, and so when sort of the, the envy and the wrath peter out, there is left just a sorrow and um, a separation from goodness. So sloth or sloth, either one. Um, in the Greek, it is echedia, um, in the Latin from the Greek, which literally means, from achedia, mean, literally means without care. That's what this vice is. It is the soul that, that just doesn't care. It's sort of a spiritual apathy, an ennui or boredom about divine things, yawning in the face of God. It is a vice that is opposed to the joy that charity should produce. Remember uh, last week, envy is the vice that is opposed to the joy that we should have in other people's good. When something good happens to another person, we should be joyful about that because we love that person. And envy is the vice opposed to that joy that we should feel. 
Sloth is the vice opposed to the joy that we should feel for ourselves because of the goodness that God shows to us and because of the invitation that he makes to us. So, sloth is more than just laziness. That's usually how we use it. A sluggard, a slothful man is usually, we're usually just describing a lazy person. But the vice really goes deeper than that. And as I hope to illustrate, a very, very active and busy person can still suffer from this vice. And in fact, I think that's what's going on in a lot of ways in our culture. The go-getters, the hard workers can still suffer from this vice. They can still have a great sorrow for divine goods, about divine goods. In fact, that's why they're racing around and keeping busy, because they don't want to rest and think about divine things. So, uh, Father Hardin defines it, have it on your sheet, a sluggishness of soul or boredom because of the exertion necessary for the perf performance of a good work. That's in general. Uh, and then he goes on uh, later, sloth may also mean a repugnance to divine inspirations or the friendship of God due to the self-sacrifice and labor needed to cooperate with actual grace or to remain in a state of grace. So that's what, it's, that's what we're focusing on this evening. That's what it's really about is this repugnance of what God offers us, his friendship, his grace, growth in both. He goes on, this kind of laziness is directly opposed to the love of God is, and is one of the main reasons why some people, perhaps after years of virtuous living, give up in the pursuit of holiness or even become estranged from God. In the monastic tradition, it's called the noonday devil. And that phrase is taken from Psalm 91. Uh, if you pray Compline or night prayer uh, this evening, that, that is the psalm. It, it, is, it is the devil that lays waste at noon. And in the monastic tradition, they saw that as sort of a tedium that would come over the monk at noon. He's been up probably since four or five in the morning. Um, he's worth his salt. He probably hasn't had much to eat, and he's given a lot of time in prayer and in labor and in study. And noon comes around. You know, I've still got a whole lot more of the day left here. Um, and so there's a tedium or an exhaustion of boredom, which can become a laziness and a repugnance for divine things. Uh, the noonday devil. I recommend very, very highly a wonderful uh, article written in First Things. You can find it online. I've referenced it actually at the top. It's called Fighting the Noonday Devil uh, by R.R. R. Reno. Uh, he makes this great point, and it shows how sloth may very well be the sin, the vice that dominates our culture. We might think it's lust. I mean, this would be an interesting debate to have perhaps at the end of all of these as to, you know, which sin really dominates. And of course, the person who gets up and says, well, Father, you said they're all interconnected. So, yes, they are. So, I mean, one is going to lead to all of the others. Reno makes this point. Most of us just want to be left alone so that we can get on with our lives. Most of us want to be safe. In fact, I, uh, when I was on retreat in November, a group of high school boys came uh, and we were making their retreat there and we ended up sharing the dining hall with them. And, um, 
and her and each boy would be asked to lead all of the other boys in prayer before breakfast. And one of the kids prayed, he, he said, Dear God, we ask you to keep us safe today. And my friend and I were on retreat, we kind of looked at each other, like, what are they going to be doing on retreat? That they need to be kept safe. Okay. But this is first and foremost in our minds, to be kept safe. We want, most of us want to be safe. We want to find a cocoon, spiritually, psychologically, economically, and physically gated community in which to live without danger and disturbance. The carefree life, a life achedia, without concern, is our cultural ideal. It's a great observation, and it shows how this vice really can infiltrate uh, our, our national mores and, and mentality. So it is a distinct vice, insofar as a man shirks, and this is St. Thomas speaking, shirks a distasteful and burdensome work or sorrows on account of any other cause whatever, but only insofar as he's sorry on account of the divine good, which sorrow belongs essentially to sloth. This is what character, characterizes it, sorrow on account of the divine good. There is a physical component to it. I mentioned the monk at noon, exhausted, hungry. Uh, so there is a physical component to it because, of course, we are not pure spirit. We are body-soul unity. And so there is a sort of exhaustion of the body that can tug down the soul as well. And, th and that can uh, lead to or exacerbate sloth. The word itself comes from Middle English for slow. It is a slow love. Parents, it's, it's like when you say to your children, you know, would, would you please come upstairs and, I don't know, you know, set the table for dinner or clear the table after dinner or take out the trash or, you know, one of the many chores. And the kids say, yep, be right there. Okay, and half an hour, an hour later, they, they make it up there. That's sort of a natural version of sloth. What's interesting is that, and, and this, this gets back at the, the, to the point that even the, vis the busy people can suffer this. St. Thomas points out, sloth is opposed to the precept about hallowing the Sabbath day. Sloth is opposed to the third commandment, to resting on the Sabbath. Now this is fascinating. If I had to choose my favorite commandment, they're all good, I like them all, but if I had to choose my favorite, it would be to keep holy the Sabbath. God says, rest, and we ignore it. And then we're exhausted by the end of the weekend. And so what's happened in our culture is that instead of Sunday becoming the culmination of the week, uh, just as God rested from all the work he'd been, do been doing, he rested on the seventh day, so we should rest on the Sabbath from all the work that we've completed. Instead, we use the Sabbath to get more things done. And I think there's more than a little of what St. Thomas uh, observed in our cultural reality. The fourth commandment, he, he says, insofar as it is a moral precept, implicitly commands the mind to rest in God. That is the kind of rest that the Sabbath has in mind. Not just getting away from work, which many of us don't do anyway, but resting in God. And sorrow of the mind about the divine good is contrary to this. 
And so sloth doesn't want to rest in God. It doesn't want to observe the Sabbath. It would rather go shopping. See how it leads to avarice. Or, you know, um, load up the Sunday with soccer games or basketball games or any number of things. And so it's very interesting how sloth can be opposed to a certain kind of rest because what it is avoiding is divine good. St. Thomas lists the daughters of sloth, and uh, I think you all have that handout somewhere. Um, and and St. Thomas explains them, saying that they come into kind of two categories. There's an immoderate sorrow about things, and that leads to despair about the final end that's to be achieved. It leads to faint-heartedness about the means for achieving it, and it leads to a sluggishness about the commandments, kind of dragging our heels about things. And then the other three daughters are an avoidance of sorrow. So one is immoderate sorrow, and then the other is avoiding sorrow, trying to find the wrong kind of joy to cure the, the sorrow of sloth. And so, to avoid sorrow that we feel, we might fall into spite for those appointed to lead us spiritually. Spite for those who say, keep the Sabbath, rest, make time for prayer. And the response is, Father, I'm really busy. Okay, that's not going to work on the last day. Okay, standing before God and saying, I was really, really busy. Um, it can lead, St. Thomas says, to malice for spiritual good for the spiritual goods themselves. And then the most interesting to my mind is a wandering of the mind after unlawful things. Anyone who's ever used the internet knows what St. Thomas is talking about, and he, for the record, never used the internet. <laughs> wandering after unlawful things. They may not be unlawful in the sense of necessarily immoral, but drawing us away from what we should be doing, even if what we should be doing is going to bed. Sloth leads us to sort of, you know, change the channel on the TV and see what else is on, even though we should have been in bed three hours ago. Uh, or, or, you know, visit yet another website, say, well, gosh, I really wonder what uh, Britney Spears is doing now. Okay. <laughs> I've been wondering about it all day. This is, uh, and, and Reno uh, touches on this in his article in First Things, that in the monastic tradition, the monk who's fighting the noonday devil, he'd get bored with things, and what, what does he start doing? He starts looking around for something to entertain him, something to divert his attention. And so an ancient writer writes, the noonday devil stirs the monk also to long for different places in which he can find easily what is necessary for his life and can carry on a much less toilsome and more expedient profession. It is not on account of locality, the devil suggests, that one pleases God. He can be worshipped anywhere. Thus, the noonday devil employs all his wiles so that the monk may leave his cell and flee to the race course. Well, we don't need to even leave our room. With TV 
and internet now, we can be distracted from what we should be doing right there in the comfort of our own room. And now we can see how sloth leads to lust. Mary Eberstadt, in one of her uh, articles on, uh, online about the seven deadly sins, uh, she writes uh, about the connection between sloth and pornography. She says, pornography owes much to sloth. Pornography and sloth between them have induced in some men a state that their ancestors would have thought impossible. It has rendered them too lazy for real sex. And, sl and sloth plays a similar supporting role in other aspects of our moral disorder. Sloth obviously di dictates the shortcut of artificial contraception, for example, as least as much as lust does. Interesting. Contraception uh, associated with sloth, why? Well, because not using contraception carries with it the possibility of a child, which means what? Well, more effort, more self-sacrifice, <laughs> more prayer. Very interesting connection between those two and brings out again how all of these vices go together. Now, what is presumed or perhaps unstated in all of this is that there's a proper form of relaxing. We need to relax. We need some moments in which we just, uh, well, maybe even just do nothing, but listen to music perhaps, or, uh, or just have a conversation or look at a beautiful piece of art or something like that. We need times to relax. But notice that in our culture, what people call relaxation really isn't relaxing. We're, oh, now we've got extreme sports. Sports used to be something you did just for fun, you know, just to unwind. But now you have extreme sports. And it's sort of substituting what should be a spiritual zeal and, and redirecting it somewhere else because, well, the spiritual zeal, well, it's, it's too frightening. It's not safe because it might mean that you run into God and he'll demand all sorts of things for you. So in our culture, we have... Uh, we have two extremes, that, neither of which is, is real uh, recreation, which is to say recreation. On, on one extreme, you have vegging out. TV is the greatest example. Now the Internet is, is uh, a good example as well. Just sitting there and watching who knows what. And I think many of us have had the experience of you know, an hour, perhaps two or three, having gone by and coming to our senses and going, oh, my gosh. I, I've just spent all of this time in front of the TV, and I, I, I feel dumber for it. <laughs> okay, nothing. I don't feel any better for it. I haven't really relaxed, but I haven't produced anything either. So there's the vegging out, which is not a Catholic thing. St. Thomas assigns a virtue to play. Isn't that great? He was really Italian. I mean, okay. <laughs> there, a, a virtue for relaxing and having fun. That's one extreme. The other extreme is, as I pointed out, the extreme sports, not really recreating, but using break from work as an opportunity to do something that exhausts us more so we get back to work on Monday and we're even more tired than, than we were uh, on Friday. It's worth also, also thinking about how sloth damages intimacy with others. Vanity, envy, and wrath have already done a great deal. But sloth kicks in as well, because friendship is a good 
and friendships are something really that God desires us to have, and friendships take effort. Marriages take effort. And so if we're unwilling to make that effort, our relationships suffer, and we find ourselves to be more and more alone. Keep that in mind for when we get to avarice. Sloth basically despairs of the energy required for relationships, and so it backs away from them. They're, they're too, too demanding. There is also a, a sloth of the pious. Sorry. Okay, I mean, if, if, if you're taking in our Sunday evening to come to a church for a talk, then you have some degree of piety. Uh, St. John of the Cross talks about uh, how this can uh, a danger for the pious. As to spiritual sloth, many beginners shy away and flee from things of a spiritual nature because they do not appeal to their sensible taste. He says, and this is a different author commenting on St. John of the Cross, too many people are moved to indulge in spiritual exercises and devotional practices by the consolation and pleasure they find in them. And the more we look at the little pathetic orthodoxies that attract us today, the little pet uh, sects that we find even within the church, the more we find that they are no more than balms to, to sweeten our self-love. So here is the danger, the, the sloth of the pious. It's the danger of prefer, preferring piety to holiness, being satisfied just with pious practices that make us feel good instead of going further and exerting that spiritual effort that is needed really to push through to genuine holiness. Now, the opposing virtue to this, of course, is charity, since uh, sloth is, uh, is against, uh, chari- against the joy required by charity. By cultivating charity a little more, we can uh, overcome it, and, and, and we should desire to do things in order to grow in love. The tradition lists two seemingly contradictory solutions to sloth. One is uh, activity. And so, for example, you don't want to do what you're supposed to be doing. You don't want to pray. Or you do want to pray, but you just don't want to get on your knees and pray. And so you start saying your prayers lying down with the covers tucked up to your chin, (laughs) the light out. And you'll say to the priest in the confessional, Father, I always find myself falling asleep in the middle of my prayers. I I don't know why. so at those moments, we need to, to push ourselves. Say, I know physically and perhaps even emotionally or spiritually, I just don't feel the energy. And at that moment, I need to get on my knees. I need to kind of push through that and fight it. And uh, so Chaucer talks about the diligence that is necessary for, sl- for fighting sloth. And Chaucer, actually, in The Parson's Tale, he talks about uh, one specific aspect of this, and that is praying in the morning. Many times I hear from people, yeah, I, I pray every night. Well, what about in the morning? And what do we say? No, we're too busy. Got to get going. But uh, especially in the section on, on sloth, specifically, Chaucer points out, no, prayer in the morning is one of the greatest weapons against sloth. It shows real diligence. 
there is another way of fighting it, and that is, uh, it's already been touched on actually, stability. One of the innovations in the rule of St. Benedict is the vow of stability. Benedict noticed that there was a certain kind of monk who would wander from monastery to monastery because each one, well, it just wasn't working out there. It wasn't the right place for me. And so he would go to another one and start out again, and then maybe a couple years would go by and say, well, you know, I've got to go try another monastery. This isn't working out. And we keep going from, from, from monastery to monastery. And of course, the problem turns out not to be the monasteries, but the monk. Okay. And he is trying to substitute a change in geography for what should be a change interiorly. So St. Benedict instituted stability, the vow of stability. So when, uh, in all things being equal, when a Benedictine uh, takes vows in a particular community, that Benedictine will die at that place, in that community. They don't get assigned different places. They don't go wandering around. There's a great spiritual truth here is that we need to drop anchor in a particular place in order to experience spiritual growth. Uh, to mix metaphors, we should drop anchor and set roots, uh, both. Uh, we cannot grow unless we set roots. So there's a certain stability that is associated also with just persevering in what we are doing. Don't go chasing uh, uh, aimlessly. Don't, don't go wandering after unlawful things. But instead, remain rooted where you are and persevere in what you are supposed to do. Now, ah, I thought I had lost Dante. That would have been very bad. Okay. How does he describe the ring of purgatory associated with sloth that is, that is purging this vice? He writes, I stood as you stand if you're about to drowse and fall to dreams, when at once all my sleep was snatched from me by people coming at us from behind. Those souls, hard-spurred, as far as I could tell, galloping for goodwill and righteous love. Straight away past us on the ring they swept, for that great throng of spirits ever raced, and the front runners shouted as they wept, Mary ran to the hill country in haste. In every ring of purgatory, Dante places some reference to the Blessed Virgin Mary, because, of course, she shows us every virtue. And so... Uh, Mary shows us, of course, how to overcome or how to avoid sloth. She went in haste to the hill country of Judea. She didn't hesitate. She didn't say to the angel, oh, that's good news. I'll, I'll get out there next week, next month, you know, whenever we get a chance. I'm really busy. Um, <laughs> she went in haste to the hill country. And so these souls being purged of sloth are, are saying that as they race around this ring to be purged. And, and notice the language there. Uh, Dante's about to fall asleep. He's drowsy, which epitomizes, of course, sloth. We just, just want to be left alone and be safe. When at once all my sleep was snatched from me, um, they were galloping for goodwill and righteous love. Straight away past us on the ring they swept. So there's, a, there's an urgency in, the, in this ring of purgatory. Come on, come on, don't let time slip away for lukewarm love, cried those who ran nearby. Zeal and well-doing makes grace green again. Don't let time slip away for lukewarm love. Sloth is sometimes 
just called slow love. It's, it's, not, it, it's not without love entirely, but it's so slow to respond it might as well be without love. And then one of the souls speaks to Dante saying, So full of ardent will to move are we, we cannot rest. Pardon us then, and don't mistake our duty for discourtesy. You know, they have to hurry by, and they, but they don't want to be discourteous. So they excuse us, we've got to, we've got to race ahead now uh, because we're being purged of our sins. So if you don't like running, um, then, then uh, stay away from sloth because you're going to be doing a lot of it in purgatory. <laughs> and the liberating beatitude that Dante sort of assigns to this vice, blessed are those who mourn. Interesting. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they have the proper sorrow. Remember, sloth is an, a disordered sorrow, a sorrow for divine good, about divine goods. So blessed are those who mourn, who have the proper sorrow for the proper things. So we'll race on now to the next one, to avarice. I realize this is not really relevant for our culture right now. <laughs> so at the top of your sheet, I have uh, the famous line from St. Paul's first letter to Timothy. Before I get into that, here we're in the middle. I'll make a plug for Dr. O'Donnell's talk on Thursday night on the martyrdom of St. Paul. Uh, when, in 1989, when I rent, went to Rome uh, on a trip with Father Fasano, we ran into Dr. O'Donnell and a group from Christendom, and he was giving a tour of Rome. It was one of the best tours I've ever had. It was extraordinary. So he really, he, he knows his history, and uh, he knows Rome, which, of course, is where St. Paul was martyred. And so I encourage you. He's a great speaker. Uh, he's a great historian and a uh, man full of devotions. Um, so I encourage you to, to that talk. All right. Advertising's over. All right. St. Paul to Timothy writes, For the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pangs. Wandered away from the faith. Avarice or greed or covetousness, whichever word you use, has traditionally been associated with idolatry. Keep that in mind. Keep also in mind that we tend to become what we worship. We tend to become what we worship. What is avarice or greed? It is not just a love of things or a love of money as much as it is a love of simply of possessing. The avaricious man is not so much delighted in what he has, but in the fact that he has it. In fact, he may not care about it very much at all. He may not pay it any mind. He may not reverence it. Probably doesn't. But he has it. And that's what's important to him. The, what is the good that is distorted here? What is the, the, uh, the inclination that is uh, disordered? Well, it is the natural uh, need we have for material things. Why do we have that need? Well, to support our lives. Why do we need to support our lives so we can grow spiritually? 
And so St. Ignatius says in the first principle foundation of the spiritual exercises, we should treat all things in this world for our spiritual good. And so even our material possessions should serve that. We have a tendency to treat our possessions just as that, as possessions. St. Thomas speaks of them as means to an end. They are not things that are just there so that we can have them. They are things that are entrusted to our stewardship so that we can use them for our good and ultimately for our supernatural good. Avarice regards the interior disposition of the person. Not so much externally what the person is doing, but the interior disposition. So a poor person can be extremely greedy, and unfortunately sometimes are. A wealthy man, a filthy rich man, can be completely free of avarice or greed. What this is addressing is that interior disposition that takes a, a disordered delight just in possessing things. So it's not just those who get bonuses at AIG. <laughs> and it, there is more than a little, um, a little hypocrisy in our nation saying, look at those greedy people, as if we, all the rest of us were, were free of this. You don't need money to be greedy. St. Thomas sees this as the bridge between the spiritual and the carnal vices. This is the last one in his estimation of things that regards simply the interior disposition. And obviously, it is going outwards now. And it is, is looking at material things. The next two, which we'll talk about next week, are clearly uh, carnal, primarily. Uh, gluttony and lust. And St. Thomas says that avarice leads to a threefold offense. And one of them would be a good little debate. The first offense is against our neighbor, because this vice can prompt us to take what is not ours, to deprive our neighbor of his goods. So I'll throw this out here for debate. We're not going to debate it right now, but just to stir up some trouble. Um, does this still apply? St. Thomas was dealing with a different economic system, uh, one that might see things as a zero-sum games. So if I'm taking some material goods, by, by necessity, there are not as many to go around. In a, a modern economy, there is such a thing as creation of wealth. And so it's not necessarily the truth that if I grow wealthy, I am therefore depriving somebody of their wealth. So throw that out there. But there is still this truth, uh, no matter the difference in the economies, there's still this truth about avarice that it leads, of course, to theft. And that deprives another one, somebody else of what is rightly theirs. The second offense is against ourselves. And, and keep in mind, always, this is why God hates sin, because it hurts the ones that he loves. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't hate sin. Because he loves us, he hates what harms us, and sin does us the greatest harm. Uh, this little book uh, called The Seven Deadly Sins Today by Henry Fairley, back in, I think, the early 80s or late 70s, Notre Dame Press puts it out, 
No comments about Notre Dame. Um, he makes the point that penny pinching leads to a pinched life. It's a great way of understanding it. The avaricious man is a penny pincher. Uh, I love the phrase, he, he treats nickels like manhole covers. <laughs> you know, um, and so the penny pincher, you know, it, his life is becoming more and more confined and small. The person of virtue has, has a broad view of things, but the, the, the man dominated by vice, and in this, this regard dominated by avarice, his life is constricted and confined. And his love of possessing things infiltrates every aspect of his life. It poisons everything. It poisons friendships. It poisons sexuality. It poisons religion. Because what he is interested in is not enjoying these things, but possessing them. Not enjoying a friendship, but having friends. So you can see avarice can kind of kick us back to envy. The avaricious man, you know, that's my friend. His avarice has poisoned friendship, so he sees friends as possessions instead of as a relationship. And sexuality. Instead of sexuality being an expression of love, an exchange of persons, when it is infected by this vice, it becomes just using other people to get something, to possess another person, to consume another person. All of these things, needless to say, present in our culture. The word that we have for this kind of man is a miser. It's straight from the Latin, miser. A miserable man is what it means. A miser, is just, it literally means the miserable man. Uh, and he is miserable because he is not free from his possessions. He's, he's attached to them. He, he doesn't have possessions so much as he is possessed by them. And remember, we, be, we become what we worship. And so what do we do? We start identifying ourselves by our possessions, by our clothes, the brand names we wear maybe, by our cars. We, 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 we sort of mold our identity around these things. And his boundaries get, get smaller and smaller. Uh, again, Fairley makes the, um, he comments on the, on the word that we have for, the word we have, snob. And traditionally, the, the etymology of that word is um, speculated to be sine nobilitate, without nobility. Sine nobilitate becomes snob, just gets abbreviated that way. And so the person dominated by greed really has no nobility about the things that he possesses. He has more delight in possessing them than he has in the things themselves. It's very interesting to go to a religious house and see the way that religious treat what they have. They're not careless about them, but they're not attached to them either. They treat them with a certain reverence, uh, but not too much. They, they know what these things are for. And again, uh, Fairley has a, uh, a powerful quote about um, consumerism, and this is really characteristic of our culture. Um, consuming things. This is the first time in history that we have shopping as therapy, right? When, when, when the going gets tough, you know, go shopping. Um, it's not a healthy thing. Um, he writes, we are out of our minds in our search for possessions. We scour the world for them. 
we spend hours in boutiques and department stores wondering if we want something. <laughs> Whereas if we really needed or wanted it, we would have no doubts. If you go into a store and you have to walk around thinking, okay, do I need anything here or do I want anything here? Then you probably don't need or want anything there. Shopping, <laughs> shopping should be a search and rescue mission. <laughs> go in, know what you need to get, get out. And this, this, this reminds us, this pushes us back to sloth as well. Three things in our culture that we shouldn't do without a clear purpose. Watch TV, go online, and go shopping. So we watch TV and go online without a clear purpose, we're just wasting time and just, it's, it's deadening. If we go shopping without a clear purpose, we, we end up getting things that we don't need. Spending money that we, we don't have. I realize I'm not doing any, anything to help the economy by, by promoting this. So uh, an, another uh, person who has uh, commented on this is um, Anthony Esselin. He, he writes a lot online and for Touchstone Magazine and First Things, and he, he's written more than I've read. Um, he gave a great talk at St. Rita's about three years ago on uh, A Christmas Carol. And he said that Scrooge's real problem was, was that he was alone, and he wanted to be left alone. And that's actually what he says at one point in A Christmas, Christmas Carol. I just want to be left alone. We think Scrooge's problem is simply the money part. Well, obviously, that's an element. But, it, but Esalen brought out this, this great aspect that Scrooge wants to be left alone. His possessions have rendered him incapable of relationships. He just wants to know that he possesses things. The opposing, ah, there's that quote from the catechism on your sheet. Avarice, like fornication, originates in the idolatry prohibited by the first three prescriptions of the law, first three commandments. Um, interesting association of avarice and fornication but it originates in idolatry. In other words, placing created things ahead of God. So the virtue that opposes avarice is liberality. If somebody is struggling with um, coveting what somebody else has, maybe the, the car that the guy across the street got, or the kitchen that the lady down the street got, whatever it might be, the first question to be asked is, how much are you giving to charity? Because nothing puts possessions in their place quite like giving them away and putting, them, uh, putting these possessions in the service of some charity, like the Institute for Catholic Culture. Okay. So what does liberality do? Liberality appoints the measure of reason principal in the principally in the interior affections and consequently in the exterior taking and keeping of money and in the spending of the same. Okay, this is from the Summa, so it's a little wordy. Insofar as these proceed from the interior affection. Most important point here, liberality puts reason into our use of created goods. So that we are using them for, uh, to benefit us, both for our natural and, most, and more importantly for our supernatural end. Uh, and we are being generous with those in need. So... What does Dante do with this? In Canto 19 of Purgatory, they're in the fifth 
round or circle. And when I, re when I reached clear space in that fifth round, I saw great crowds lamenting everywhere, huge crowds everywhere, all lying with their faces to the ground. They're flat on their faces. My soul cleaves to the dust, I heard them praying, uttered with sighs so deep that it was hard to hear and understand what they were saying. It's a line from the Psalms that they're praying. My soul cleaves to the dust. And why are they praying that? Because by their avarice, by their greed, they had turned away from God and turned to worldly things. And so in purgatory, they're spending their time with their faces flat on the ground. I've heard stories about parents who catch their, you know, catch a child smoking a cigarette. They say, oh, you like cigarettes? Smoke the pack. They won't say how much you like it. <laughs> It can cure it pretty quickly. Okay. Um, and this is, you know, giving them some of the, their own medicine. They had turned against God and turned to worldly things. So God says, well, that is how you will serve out your time in purgatory, by experiencing precisely what it was that you chose. And, and it, it captures what happens when we are dominated by greed. We are placing our, our faces flat on the ground. We are loving the things of earth more than the things of heaven. We're turning our back to God. That is the position of these souls in purgatory. Their backs are to heaven. Their faces are towards the ground. Uh, let's see if this other, other one still applies. Ah, uh, yes. What avarice does is manifested here by the purgation of the souls turned round. No pain upon the hill is more severe, which is an interesting observation. For as our eyes were never raised on high, but fixed themselves upon the things of earth, here justice humbles them to touch the ground. As avarice quenched the love we should have borne for all good things and made us lose our labor, so justice holds us here within its clench, taken and bound in shackles hand and foot, and as long as our righteous judge may please, we'll lie immobile, stretched upon the earth, being purged of this sin of avarice, until they hear the beatitude that liberates them from avarice. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. Why that beatitude? Well, because those who are avaricious were thirsting for the things of this world. Well, I've got to get that. Uh, not so much because it's valuable, but just I just want to have it. They were thirsting for the things of this world, the latest, the latest gadgets, the latest clothes, the latest whatever. They weren't thirsting for the things of heaven. And so the beatitude that frees them, that Dante and Virgil hear as they leave that circle, is blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. So thank you. I'll conclude there uh, for the talk, and now we'll have a little break and questions.